we need to use these crises. This is our shot to get out of the G0 and geopolitical recession. There are these three big global crises that are in front of us right now. Pandemic, largely wasted. Climate, largely taking advantage of it. AI and disruptive technologies, still too soon to tell, but we better get our act together now. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. For the last weeks, I have been talking you through part two of the great experiment, setting out the vision for the kind of diverse democracy that we should aim for. Defending the basic philosophically liberal principles that I think can structure such a society, from how to think about the relationship between the individual, the group, and the state, to the kind of metaphor which would govern the extent of uh, integration or assimilation, to a defense of inclusive patriotism based on civic values, as well as everyday cultural patriotism. In the last part of my book, in the last part of The Great Experiment, I make the case for why there is reason to think that we can actually build such a diverse democracy and how we are able to get there. So I will talk about that today and then for two more weeks. The chapter I talk about today, chapter eight, is called Reasons for Optimism. And before I get to the substantive reasons for optimism, I think it's important to discuss why a kind of fashionable pessimism can lead us astray. A lot of people like to point out the things that are going wrong in the world. And that's good reason to do that. We should be particularly attuned to injustice. We should be particularly enraged when we fail to live up to our principles. And so it can seem politically virtuous to dwell on the negative. But I also think that there are two crucial reasons to insist on a realistic picture, which faces up to the negative, but is also capable of speaking to positive developments of appreciating improvements. The first of these is about learning how we can do better. If you live in a neighborhood in which far too many houses burn down and you've started to roll out policies like new fire alarms and an improved fire department in order to reduce the number of fires in that neighborhood, well, then it's really important to be realistic about whether those measures are helping to bring down fires or whether there are as many fires as there were before. If there's as many fires as there were before, then clearly you need a very different approach to reducing fires. If a number of fires has gone down significantly and the houses which have installed new fire alarms are at least affected by the fires, well, then the solution is a different one. It is to double down on and to speed up the measures which are actually helping to keep your neighborhood safe. The same is true in many different areas. A realistic assessment of what we're making progress is vital to making the world a better place. So when we're looking at the state of our diverse societies today, of countries like the United States, or the United Kingdom, or Germany, or France, how well or poorly are we doing? Well, I'm really struck as I've said before in this podcast, by the fashionable pessimism about this. 
On the right, there is a narrative according to which immigrants and minority groups are untruly integrated in the mainstream of society, are perhaps inferior in some kind of way, failing to make socioeconomic progress, have much lower levels of education, and all of this supposedly licenses a deep pessimism about the future of those groups and our societies as a whole. Now, most of my friends and colleagues reject that, and rightly reject that. But they echo with a pessimism of their own, saying that our societies reject outsiders or minorities or immigrants to such an extent that they can't truly integrate, they can't truly feel part of our societies. That discrimination and racism is so deep and so stark that there will always be a giant gap between the opportunities and achievements of immigrants, for example, and those of natives. Now, there are real problems in the world. There are some people who aren't making an effort to integrate into their societies. There are some people who have lived in societies without learning the language for a very long time. And there certainly is discrimination against people on the basis of the last names when it marks them out as being from an immigrant group, from an ethnic or religious minority group. There are all kinds of obstacles to succeeding when you aren't part of a majority group or of a group that has historically been affluent. All of that is true, and we need to fight against those injustices. At the same time, I have been struck in doing research for my book just how many reasons for optimism there also are, just how much better the actual empirical reality as depicted by the best studies is compared to the fashionable pessimism that is now ruling this conversation. Take something like language acquisition. Some people on the right fear that immigrants aren't learning the language of the new homes. Some people on the left argue that immigrants shouldn't learn the language, but it's perfectly fine if we don't have a common language in the United States anymore, for example. Well, the empirical reality simply shows that this is a silly debate because you have a very clear pattern to the transmission of language. In the first generation, people who immigrate, especially when they're from poorer countries, especially when they come as adults, often do struggle to learn the language. The children virtually universally prefer English or French or German or whatever the language of the country in which they now live may be, they prefer those languages to that of their ancestors, with their siblings, with their cousins, with friends of a similar background of migration. They tend to speak those new languages. And by the third generation, by the generation of the grandchildren of immigrants, the language of origin is lost nearly entirely. There's a similar optimism about notions of who truly belongs in a society. The United States has long been a country of immigrants, but in countries which used to have a much more exclusionary notion of membership, we have also seen real change in the last decades. A majority of people in most Western European nations now, for example, believe that somebody who has roots in Asia or in Africa or in the Middle East is a true German, a true Frenchman, a true Swede, if they have lived in that country for a long time and learned the language of that culture 
integrated into the society of that culture. That is a change to a few decades ago. And the same is true for socioeconomic mobility. The children, the grandchildren of immigrants are actually more likely to rise the socioeconomic ranks, to gain higher degrees, and to earn higher wages than the children and grandchildren of similarly situated natives. In the United States, immigrants today from all kinds of countries are rising the social ladder at about the same speed as Italian and Irish immigrants did a century ago. And finally, as I discussed in chapter two of this book, one of the most difficult challenges is to overcome the long shadow of past domination, which in the context of the United States means in part the ways in which the descendants of enslaved people continue to face uh, real socioeconomic hardships and challenges. But even there, there has been some significant progress. And despite the real continuing need uh, for action on this point, it is important to point out that the state of Black America is much better than Donald Trump implied when he in 2016 claimed, vote for me, what do you have to lose? In fact, the median Black American today lives in a reasonably affluent suburb rather than either the inner city or a deprived rural area. They have a white-collar job. They tend to be teachers or nurses. They get their health insurance from an employer rather than being either uninsured or having to get health insurance from the open market. And so it shouldn't be altogether surprising that African-Americans, like Hispanics, are actually more, not less, optimistic about the future than the average white American is today. None of what I've said today should minimize the injustices which persist. None of it should lower our determination to make our societies more just. But it should give us confidence that by building on the basic values of our society and by fighting to live up to them more and more fully, we can, in fact, make a big step towards the kind of ethnically and religiously diverse democracy in which most people would be excited to live. My guest today is Ian Bremer. Ian is the president and founder of the Eurasia Group, as well as a founder of G Zero Media. And he is the author of a really interesting new book called The Power of Crisis, How Free Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. So we had a conversation about why it is so incredibly hard to deal with global health emergencies like COVID, about the prospects of dealing with the crisis of climate change, and about how to find international governance structures for technological changes like the AI revolution. There's also two other things we talked about which were really interesting. The first is that I got actually the best overview of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, at the beginning of a conversation. I think for anybody struggling with continuing to make sense of where we are, you know, months into this terrible and protected conflict, that's going to be really useful. And perhaps my favorite part of the conversation was us reflecting together about how you balance 
professional and personal life, how you make sure, especially if you are as Ian, in a profession where your job is to know a lot of people, that you nevertheless have meaningful personal relationships that really are distinct from those professional ones. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Ian Drummer, welcome back to the podcast. Yasha, good to see you. You know, at the beginning of the crisis with Ukraine, a lot of people had this point they were making, which I think is a fair point that everybody cares about Ukraine and people don't care at all about Syria and so on anymore. I was had the fear that this was partially an optical illusion because at the beginning we did care about Syria. Very much so. And at some point, way into a very protracted, horrible, bloody war, we stopped caring. Is the same starting to happen with Ukraine at this point? I think so, but not equally and not everywhere. So a couple of points. First is if you're Poland and you're hosting a couple million Ukrainians in your homes, you feel incredibly and personally connected with them. You feel that the Ukrainians are fighting so that you don't have to, and you know that. I think this is existential for them. I think it's changed their worldview for a generation. I think the Germans have a fair amount of that as well. Obviously, not as directly, not as immediately or urgently as the Poles do, but still it matters. I think that for the United States, it's very much as you just described it. We feel for the Ukrainians. We sort of identify with them. They look a little like Europeans. We kind of get it for good and for bad. And we really don't like Putin. But we also like a winner. We like an underdog and we like a winner. You see it in March Madness all the time. We're always rooting for that 16 against one shot. And when they win, we get really excited and we stick with them until they lose. And then we forget about them. And of course, part of this is not just that the war's gone on for a while, but also that the Ukrainians aren't doing quite as well. And of course, who could imagine that they could, as they were improbably in the first few weeks. And I think that those things combined are going to make it a lot harder for the Americans to continue to take the leadership role. Because let's face it, militarily and economically, the United States has done the lion's share of the lifting here. And no one really would have expected that before February 24th. I'm very skeptical that the Americans will be able to maintain that kind of support for another six, 12 months consistently. And the danger here will be you will open a gap between the Americans and Ukraine and between Biden and Zelensky that existed in a big way before February 24th, and then suddenly it didn't anymore. They got really aligned. I'm not sure that that's consistent or credible either. And you can kind of see online the Russians feeling out the narrative of, no, actually, we're winning. Actually, no, we've got the Donbass, we've got the land bridge, we've got Crimea, Ukraine's not joining NATO. That's what we wanted. I mean, enormous amount of fake news and disinformation in that. But you can feel them trying that on and seeing, hey, let's try to push back against the one thing that has been a consistent for the first 100 days of this war, which is that the Ukrainians are winning every aspect of information warfare. That is starting to erode. There's no question. 
So you alluded to the reversals of fate over the course of this war. And I think part of what is making Ukraine recede from public attention a little bit is that it's very hard to actually understand what's going on and what the implications of it are. So at the beginning, the assumption was in Russia, but also in the American intelligence community, as I understand it, that Russia would win the war relatively easily, that they would likely take Kiev. And then you might have a guerrilla warfare situation, a protected way, you might not. But in any case, the assumption was that Kiev and other major Ukrainian cities would fall quickly. That turned out to be wrong. Ukraine did incredibly well in the first 100 or so days of a war. And then I think, as so often happens, the conventional wisdom and the narrative flipped and people started to think, well, Ukraine is winning this war and Russia can't possibly take much more territory and it's going to be a long protracted war probably, but actually Ukraine is going to hold its own. In the last days and weeks, it has felt as though that second narrative has started to crumble a little bit as well, because Russia does seem to be making significant advances. What do you think is the basic range of likely scenarios for the coming months or years? Is this going to be a protracted war that's a kind of stalemate? Could Russia actually suddenly surge and succeed in taking Kiev after all, even if it might be three or six or nine months after they initially hoped to do so? Are they going to annex part of Ukrainian territory and declare victory and some kind of uneasy peace treaty or ceasefire is going to be called? What are the basic scenarios? What do you think is likely? Well, I think that the basic scenarios for the next few months actually are pretty easy to define because the Russians have not done a full mobilization as many expected they were going to announce on Victory Day on May 9th. And so that means that the troops that they have in the field right now are pretty much it for the coming months. So yes, they have artillery dominance for the time being. They certainly have air force dominance going forward, but their troops are picking up territory now because they have way scaled back their ambitions to the Donbass, to fighting in Luhansk, which they've nearly taken, and fighting in Donetsk, which they've taken about two-thirds of at this point, and they're gaining about a kilometer of additional territory roughly every day. That's really slow. The Ukrainians have some ability to engage in counter-strikes. We've seen some of that announced in Kherson, which is the bottom of the land bridge and where the Russians took it very quickly. It was the first city they took because it's what allowed the Ukrainians to cut the water supply off from Crimea. It's unclear as to whether or not those counterstrikes will be effective. But basically what we're saying is over the next few months, the Russians will have significantly more territory than they had in Ukraine on February 23rd. But they are largely out of the surrounding regions of Kharkiv. They are not anywhere in terms of Kiev and the surrounding regions. They are what they announced as this second phase of the special military operations, as they've described it. It's the occupied territories of the Donbass Plus. And they are making moves to annex that formally, including you know, things like who handles your Wi-Fi and you're using rubles and who licenses your car and, you know, even who gives you a passport, which of course is completely unacceptable in terms of international law and any potential negotiated settlement with the Ukrainians. That's where we are. Now, then you have the broader question of what does that mean 
going forward? Can we just declare a frozen conflict and go home? And here I am both much more uncertain and also much more skeptical. More uncertain because the Russians are on the back foot economically, politically, and geostrategically. Finland and Sweden are joining NATO, the Turkish opposition notwithstanding. I think we get through that, and I think that they join. Forward deployments of all these NATO troops right along the Russian border across Eastern Europe, the German massive expansion in defense spend, the enormous level of military support and training and intelligence that the West and the U.S. is providing for the Ukrainian government, which was the big red line for Putin in the invasion to begin with is, no, you're not going to be a threshold state for NATO. Well, they're a lot closer to NATO now than they were before the invasion. And Zelensky is this war hero that is, you know, roundly celebrated and visited by all of these leaders across the EU and North America. How is Putin going to be willing to tolerate that for one year, two years, three years down the road? I mean, as they rebuild, are they going to take another bite of that apple like they did in Chechnya? And then what about Russia versus NATO? Are we going to see a reemergence of cyber attacks, espionage, disinformation attacks against NATO countries by the Russians, especially when the Russians have already been cut off to about the maximum degree that they can be? I mean, the Americans have about as many sanctions on Russia as one could put on Russia. Russia is today the most heavily sanctioned country in the world. The Europeans finally got to the sixth round of sanctions with a oil boycott that is, by the end of 2022, will amount to 90% of all oil from Russia to the EU being cut off. All of the shipped oil, much of the piped oil, as well as broader shipping and insurance being boycotted, and the Europeans really matter there. Well, I mean, if you're Russia and you're looking at they're punishing me as much as they humanly can, what's stopping the Russians from now taking the fight more directly, certainly in asymmetric form, to NATO? And I think the answer is they will do that. So as much as I could easily say, yeah, we're going to have a frozen conflict on the ground in Ukraine because both sides will have exhausted each other and there's just not that much more territory to play for in the near term. I can make that call, but that does not feel to me like a sustainable equilibrium, even near term. I think this is going to get worse over time. I think this is a new Cold War with elements of a hot war between Russia and NATO, and it immediately rises to the top of everybody's security agenda. It's it's not fixable, and that's a big problem. So, I mean, one way of summarizing what you just said is that it's not going to be a frozen conflict. It's going to be a kind of bubbling conflict where you never know whether an explosion might come. I think that's right, Yasha, yeah. Is that the likely scenario for you? think that, you know, Russia will take whatever territory it can in Ukraine and then at least give up for a little while and there will be some continued hostilities as there have been, of course, for the last nearly decade in those regions of Ukraine, that the sort of bombardments of major Ukrainian cities will stop and the sort of most extreme form of a hot war will stop. And then you go into this weird, unstable next phase of uh, broader conflict between Russia 
and Ukraine on the one side and NATO and these other forms of warfare on the other hand. You think that's the sort of likely outcome. What are some of the alternatives, right? I mean, sort of the less likely outcomes that would look really different to that. Sure. That's the right question to ask. I do think that's the likely outcome. It's an iron curtain, but this new iron curtain doesn't divide Europe. It unites Europe on one side of it because the other side of it is Belarus, some occupied territories in Ukraine and Russia. And that's about it. And so, yeah, the Russians feel even more deeply aggrieved and humiliated and angry. Putin is still very much in charge. His economy is the first time a G20 economy has ever been completely severed from the advanced industrial democracies. But, you know, it's not the end of Russia. We're not making Russia North Korea. They're still selling to the Chinese the the largest consumer of Russian oil out there. They're still selling to the emerging markets all over the world. And of course, Hungary and Serbia, you know, a couple of, if you will, rogue or fairly isolated Europeans in quotes. Some less likely scenarios. One less likely scenario is that the new support that the Americans and others are providing to the Ukrainians allow them to start taking back a lot more land and start allowing the Ukrainians even to shell more effectively Belgorod inside Russia, for example, so that they are able to credibly say that the occupied territories of the Donbass since 2014, they want to get back. And the Russians, I think, would see that as completely unacceptable near term, a profound loss of face. And that's when the Russians might say, we're going to use chemical weapons. And then gas gets cut off immediately to the Europeans. The Europeans are driven into a major recession. German industrials can't function very well. BASF is in bankruptcy. We've got a bigger crisis in the near term as a consequence of that. That's one scenario that I consider unlikely, but possible. It's more than 5%. I mean, it could definitely happen. There's an active war going on, and you've got a lot of support for the Ukrainians to do more, to accomplish more. And by the way, the Ukrainians, that is their goal. I was in Davos and met with the entire Ukrainian delegation, the mayors, the governors, the deputy prime minister, the ministers, a lot of parliamentarians. Every one of them wants to take back all the land that the Russians have taken. And if they have the military capability to do that, they will do it. But the Russians aren't going to let them win. I mean, the Russians, again, have 10x the defense spend that the Ukrainians do on an ongoing basis. And they have a lot of weapons that so far, thankfully, they haven't deployed into the field. But that doesn't mean they won't. It just means that they don't feel like they've had to. So let's keep in mind that the Russians so far haven't felt pushed into a corner, but that could easily happen. So that's one scenario. A second scenario that I consider even less likely is that the Russians declare victory with their land bridge and their occupied territory and literally say, great, we won, that's it. And now we're done. We're going to work with China. We're going to work with the developing world. We'll work with the Hungarians. We'll work with the Turks. And we don't really care about the fact that the West has pretended to beat us back because they haven't. We'll live in our own disinformation bubble. Nothing about Putin makes me believe that that is plausible. Would that be a plausible scenario if Putin, for some reason, ceases to be president of Russia, either because the rumors about his ill health turn out to be well-founded or there's some kind of palace coup or whatever else might happen, and there's a successor who says, I want to stabilize things domestically and I'll declare victory and be done? It's more possible, but any successor would likely be someone or a groups of someone's 
from the uh, Security Council that is that group that met around that big table the day before the invasion, where Putin went to all of them and said, how do you feel about the attack, you know, impending war? What do you think? And they were all like, yes, Mr. President, we support you, except the one who said, I'm not so sure. Putin said, you want to reconsider that? Because you know you have family, right? Uh, and then he reconsidered it. And these are all people who feel fundamentally aggrieved about the West. They feel angered by the West. And Russian nationalism is a very strongly motivating force. So I think that the worldview of the next Russian president is likely to be very closely aligned with that of Putin. The risk acceptance may be different, but Putin's risk acceptance hasn't been super high. He just made a big mistake in judgment around this invasion. He thought that he was taking a small risk, he was wrong. He was taking a big one. But once the Russians are already cut off and you can't find a way to plug back in, then the risks that you're taking from additional fighting against NATO are less. I mean, that is kind of the reality. And Biden's made that very clear. Biden said, we're not going to give you know, sort of long range artillery to allow the Ukrainians to take the war inside Russia. We are not trying to remove Putin. I mean, at every step of this conflict, you have Biden saying, I want to avoid steps that could create direct war between the Russians and NATO. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to succeed in doing that, but he's made that clear. And that makes it easier for Putin potential successors. And again, I think it's quite unlikely Putin's going anywhere, but it's worth asking the question, would take a dramatically different position than they're actually taking right now. You have a new book out, but I'd love to talk about called The Power of Crisis, How Free Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. What are those three main crises you're talking about? Why should we be worried about them, first of all? Well, the three are the pandemic and pandemics climate change and the proliferation of disruptive technologies, particularly AI, but more broadly. And of course, the book had to be submitted to the press on February 26th, which meant that I had two solid days to also write about Russia and Ukraine. And the conversation we've just had is also very relevant to this. So Yasha, you've known me for a bit now. My oeuvre, if you can call it that, over the last 10 years has been various parts of me talking about the world heading into geopolitical recession, heading into a bus cycle where the institutions aren't working, they're becoming delegitimized both domestically and internationally, and what that means for the global order. I wrote a book called The End of the Free Market that talked about what that meant for the global economy. I wrote Every Nation for Itself, which talked about what that means in macro international affairs terms, a G0 world. I wrote a book called Us Versus Them, which is what does that mean inside democratic systems, very aligned with a lot of what you've been writing more recently, Yasha. This is the first book I've written that says, okay, so we're in this geopolitical recession that I've been warning about for 10 years now. How do we get out of it? And the way I think we get out of it is the response to the crises, the various crises, and they're very different kinds of crises that are increasingly becoming manifest out of this geopolitical recession. So in a sense, this is the most hopeful book that I've ever written, but it's hopeful precisely because we're at that time in the geopolitical cycle where solutions should start to present themselves since things are starting to break. It's becoming increasingly obvious 
to all of the observers that we're not on a sustainable trajectory. We can't keep acting the way we've been acting. And what are we going to do about it? So I want to go through point by point and hear your optimism for each of these topics. I guess there's one little pushback to what you were just saying. It would be nice to think that geopolitical relations are sort of like the cycle of the economy, and we know that what goes down has to come up again. At the same time, the preconditions for us having any form of global cooperation seem worse now than we did at any point. The divide between the West and Russia and China is deeper than it has been at any point since 1990. The polarization within democracies is so deep that, frankly, it's not clear that the United States, for example, is a very reliable partner because whatever deal you make with Joe Biden may go out of the window once Donald Trump could be back in office in 2024. Where does the level of cooperation lie? Where does the confidence come from? But just because things are really bad right now, they're going to get better rather than continuing to fall apart in worse ways, perhaps in ways as we've seen the world wars or perhaps worse than that. We'll get into that, but let's stipulate that just because we are now in a geopolitical recession doesn't mean it won't become a geopolitical depression. It doesn't mean that we're suddenly on the way out of it. What I'm saying in this book is I actually see plausible ways to build architecture to come out of this. And I see examples where we're already doing it. But I want to be very clear. Geopolitical cycles are long cycles. And the reason they're long cycles, unlike economic cycles, is because the way they come about is that the architecture and the institutions that you've built, both inside your country and globally, no longer align with the priorities and the balance of power that exists. And the institutions are sticky. It takes a long time to recognize that, and it takes a long time for it to play out. So by the time you're in a geopolitical recession and you recognize it, you're usually in fairly deep. So it's harder. These are more disruptive and catalytic events. We might be heading into global economic recession right now. And we have a lot of people very glibly saying, won't be that bad. They might be right. I mean, we have them every seven years. Some of them you barely notice. You get through. They're in your rearview mirror. And we know what the tools are to respond. We've got the fiscal. We've got the monetary tools. Everyone kind of rose in the same direction. Geopolitically, that's not true. Furthermore, I write this book not as an idealist. So I say right in the opening of the book, and I mean, you're asking the question in part, I think, because you know this. I am suggesting that the United States is a very deeply divided and dysfunctional political system. And you and I can sit and have a conversation about what sorts of things would fix that. I don't believe it's remotely fixable in the next five to 10 years. I don't think we can suddenly say we're going to turn that ship around. So that's number one. Secondly, that's also true for the most powerful geopolitical relationship in the world, US-China. I can talk all day about the things that would improve that relationship. But I don't believe it's plausible that in the next five to 10 years that we are going to meaningfully fix the US-China relationship and make it a trusting, positive sum relationship that both governments are actively trying to build up as opposed to tear down. And so what I say in this book is that I'm going to start with the assumption that those two things can't be fixed in the context of the time frame I'm discussing in this book. And yet, even given that, I believe that we are going to see different constellations of actors that are going to effectively 
have opportunities to respond and build new architecture and institutions that will allow the world to be more functional than it presently is. And that's a hopeful book, but it's a realistically hopeful book. It's not a, I'm going to write and explain how we can create a new third party in the United States and everyone's coming together like that. That just obviously isn't happening. And that strikes me as right. And it's interesting that at least two of the three topics you focus on are ones in which, at least at a high enough level of abstraction, the global community really does have shared interests, right? This is not about geopolitical power competition. It's about how do we make sure that we withstand the next pandemic? How do we make sure that we don't get into a global food shortage because of climate change and so on? And I would argue that all of them, all three, I would argue that's true of. And I think it's also true of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, even though it has not been framed that way at all. It's very clear to me that that is a crisis that key global actors around the world share basic equities and interests. Well, certainly, I hope we will share an interest in not ending up in World War Three. But let's go through these point by point. Why are we at a point of crisis with the pandemic and with pandemics? Why did both national and global governance of these public health threats fail so miserably over the last few years? And how can we avoid making the same mistakes when a future pandemic hits us? And as you point out, a future pandemic may be less severe than COVID, may very well be more severe than COVID as well. Well, and we're not through COVID yet. So, I mean, it's quite possible that we're going to end up with a new variant that is more severe, that leads to more mortality. And we don't yet have adequate tools to be able to respond to that, certainly not in a global way. Look, I mean, as hopeful as the book is, and it's hopeful about institutions and response, the pandemic has not been the best. Of the three crises I look at, it's the one that we are failing the most at. Um, there are absolutely bright spots. So let's start with a bright spot. You mentioned before, Yasha, and you were absolutely right, that in the early days, everyone focused on Syria. In the early days, it looked like we were going to make a real difference there. In the early days, the response to the pandemic in the United States was very strong and coordinated. We were lionizing Dr. Fauci, whether you were Democrat or Republican. Remember, he was a hero for everyone for a period of time, and it was science. It was, we don't understand what this is all about. We need to hear from you. And furthermore, the economic response from the United States was so robust, so bipartisan, focusing not just on the elites and business interests, but on the average American worker, the average American housekeeper, homemaker, you name it, that we ended up with a V-shaped recovery, an implausible V-shaped recovery. That was a very positive thing. And of course, Operation Warp Speed, which got us where we needed to be on vaccines. Now, no global coordination the U.S.-China relationship meaningfully worse because of COVID, because of the cover-up in China, and then because of the response from the Trump administration, even announcing they were leaving the WHO in the middle of a pandemic, which is pretty much an obscenity. But then the United States, as the election cycle is heating up, no longer thinks this is as big of a crisis. And so it starts getting politicized. So you don't have the urgency and red state versus blue state response gets worse. And indeed, two years plus in, the United States is more divided politically because of the pandemic. Now, I would argue that the Europeans 
actually did take advantage of the pandemic. They did engage in an internal Marshall Plan with massive redistribution of wealth from wealthy countries to poorer countries inside Europe. And they took on a EU-wide role in vaccine procurement and distribution that the EU didn't even have the power to do before the crisis hit. And it took them longer than the Americans, but it was much more equitable. And the EU comes out of the pandemic politically stronger and more consolidated than it went in. And that is actually a fairly big win. So a very mixed set of lessons that we take away. But I liked starting with the pandemic, not only because it's our collective life experience over the last couple of years, but because it's so obvious where the opportunities were and how they failed. It's so obvious that the Chinese did a great job after admitting that they had a pandemic in locking everything down, saw that the Americans and Europeans were failing, got way too complacent, didn't actually take any lessons from how the pandemic, the virus was changing. And as a consequence, here we are in 2022, and now they've got really big problems. They didn't learn. This was like so many missed opportunities by leaders with different perspectives all over the world. And ultimately, I mean, I hate to say this, but ultimately what we learned is that the crisis wasn't big enough to make them care to get them out of their mindset of eroding, delegitimizing institutions, to use it as an impulse to create something more and bigger. So what does the solution look like? I mean, what are the steps? You've talked a little bit about that, but I'm not entirely clear yet about what steps are we hopefully going to take in the next years to both defeat COVID and ensure that a more dangerous variant of COVID could be under control, but also to make sure that if the really big one hits in five or 10 or 20 years, you know, some respiratory virus, for example, that has a case fatality rate of 10 or 15% rather than below 1%, that will actually be in a place to deal with it. Because I could tell a story that's more pessimist, right? But because one of the worries I have, for example, about the sort of ongoing measures to deal with COVID, I mean, now they're basically over in the United States, was that we need to be able to ramp up and ramp down. Because if we don't ramp down when the threat is, at least for the moment, no longer severe, that will actually undermine our ability to get people to take those kinds of measures when an even bigger threat comes. And if we sort of continue to be in a semi-emergency state for years and years on end, and then a very credible new threat arises that may actually be worse than COVID, people are going to say, hang on a second, if we agree on these distancing measures or whatever may be necessary in that circumstance now, we know we're never getting out of them screw you, we're not playing along. And so you could imagine actually the lessons at the popular level being drawn from COVID, making it all the harder to have a rational response to the next possibly even more deadly pandemic. Yeah, again, of the crises I look in the book, the pandemic does not bring you to an optimistic place. Economically, the lessons are largely positive in the US, in the EU. The special drawing rights provided through the IMF to the poorest countries in the world, reducing conditionality for their extended debt. Those were largely very strong measures. The Chinese on the economic side too, though they didn't need it because they were reopened so quickly. But on the health side, 
when you look at the disinformation, when you look at the polarization on the vaccine side, when you look at the failure to get the kind of support for COVAX that was necessary, the lack of infrastructure provided on the ground in Africa. So you had vaccines that were sent that were spoiling because you couldn't get them into the arms of people. Like these are not the lessons that you want us learning. So I mean, again, the book is talking about how these crises, they're going to proliferate, they'll be bigger, and we can learn lessons and we can rebuild on the back of it. But it's not saying in a Pollyannish way that everyone will be successful. And indeed, I'm much more optimistic, as you see in the book, from our lessons from climate. I'm more optimistic from the lessons we've taken from Russia, Ukraine so far. And then I'm more uncertain, but I have a roadmap for disruptive Technology. So basically, if you want to put the book in a quick nutshell, you'd say Ian lays out the framework of we need to use these crises. This is our shot to get out of the G0 and geopolitical recession. There are these three big global crises that are in front of us right now. Pandemic, largely wasted. Climate, largely taking advantage of it. AI and disruptive technologies, Still too soon to tell, but we better get our act together now. That's the parameter of the book. So it took us from the climate piece of this. Why do you think that we are largely taking the opportunity presented by that crisis? And what will it look like in 25 or 50 years to say, hey, this is the one thing that will really rose to be occasion. In fact, the world is better, more prosperous, more peaceful because we learned how to deal with the threat posed by climate. So I'm going to answer that in a roundabout way. Why did we end up getting the first few months of Ukraine so right as the West? And I think there were two reasons. The first is because after Putin invaded, there was only one side to be on. You could not politicize this thing. Putin is a war criminal. You have to be John Mearsheimer or Tucker Carlson to be on the other side of that. There's literally no space on the other side. And furthermore, every additional thing you learn in the news over the first three months is confirming your priors. Look at how courageous the Ukrainians are. Look at what happened in Bucha. Look at the son of a bitch that Putin actually is. And on and on and on. Look at the millions of Ukrainians that are fleeing the women and the children while the men are fighting in Ukraine. I mean, everything you learn is confirming your priors. Very different from the pandemic, where in the early days, you feel pretty good about it. And then the more you learn, the more you're like, eh, it's not such a big deal. Eh, red versus blue. Do I need a mask? The science is changing. We don't know if we trust Fauci, all this sort of stuff. Climate is very much like Ukraine. It took longer to get there. But today, there's only one side of the scientific argument, which is an extraordinary thing to say. I mean, you have 195 countries that come together every year that look at the state of climate change, and they all agree we've had 1.2 degrees centigrade of warming. They all agree it's anthropogenic. It's being driven by man. It's not being driven by nature. It's not some cyclical thing that just happens. So first, there's only one side of the argument to be on. And secondly, every news cycle is confirming our priors. It used to be it was the Maldives, it's save the whales, it's hug the trees, stuff we just don't care that much about. We pretend to, but we don't. 
But now it's California and it's Louisiana and it's Italy and it's Australia. And I mean, literally every day there's more and bigger news that's affecting us. It's confirming our priors every day. It's making us feel that it's more urgent. And so we have to respond. And so it really is the exact kind of crisis that creates the need for international response. And even if the Americans and Chinese don't trust each other, I mean, there's enormous competition happening between the US and China, but that competition is largely virtuous when you talk about climate change, because we see that the Chinese are, are putting all this money into solar and into electric vehicles and into supply chain for lithium and rare earths. And we're thinking, well, we can't let them dominate post-carbon atoms. We have to do that. So we're going to invest more in as well. Everywhere you look, there's a motivation to do a hell of a lot more. And it's not just government. One of the things about this book that is particularly hopeful is that the post-G0 world order is increasingly a post-Westphalian world order. It's not just about governments. It's also about non-state actors as principal actors, as principal actors. And this really matters. I mean, like February 24th, Everyone says the war in Ukraine started, but it didn't. It started on February 23rd, because that's when the Russians engaged in cyber attacks against Ukraine. And the funny thing is, the Ukrainians didn't find out about it. Microsoft did. The front in the war between Russia and Ukraine, the first front was in Redmond, Washington. And Microsoft and SpaceX with Starlink and Google, I mean, these are literal belligerents in the war. They're actors, they're primary actors supporting Ukraine in the war against Russia. Well, when you talk about climate change, the banks that are moving trillions of dollars away from fossil fuels, away from thermal coal, away from oil and gas, and towards, you know, sort of ESG compliant industry, these are actors that have had a hell of a lot more impact and what the global outlook on climate will be than any individual developed government. And when Donald Trump took the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord, it did not matter because corporate CEOs and governors and mayors and Mike Bloomberg all were getting together and saying, no, we're still going to stick with these commitments. So actually, Mr. President, you are not the primary driver of how power will be applied when we talk about the future of global energy. All of that makes me feel that the institutional framework that we're building, not just the response on climate, but literally what the global order is going to look like in terms of energy in 20 years time is going to be far more functional than what we have today. That makes me very hopeful. So I'm trying to puzzle through why the response to climate seems in these crucial respects to be better than the response to the pandemic. I mean, when I look at the pandemic, you know, in a way, there's a very hopeful story of technology. We managed to invent these vaccines at remarkable speed, and they were our ticket out of the pandemic. Now, why was it not enough? I guess for three reasons. The first being that a lot of people within countries where people have easy access to those vaccines ended up refusing to take them. So you needed compliance in a way that you didn't on the energy side. Yep. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's an important disjuncture. The, the second is that 
Um, we didn't do enough to ensure that countries around the world had access to the vaccine in remote areas and so on. I think that's improving somewhat, but that obviously was a challenge. And the third is that it does turn out that the vaccine is enough to protect most people against severe illness or against death, but it doesn't seem to be enough to actually stop the pandemic, right? That's absolutely right. The new technologies on climate will actually completely surpass fossil fuels. At scale, invested, there will be in 30 years, the majority of global energy will no longer come from fossil fuels. It will make no sense. Where vaccines by themselves are not adequate as a response to the pandemic. Yeah, so I guess that comparison is clarifying because then what you're saying on climate change is, look, at some point, renewable energies and other technologies will just be better and cheaper than fossil fuels. And so, you know, there will be an extremely strong economic incentive to transition towards them. And if some people continue to use fossil fuels because they have an old car that they want to continue to drive or whatever, that's not going to be an important enough deviation from collective behavior to be meaningful for the collective outcome. So is it really just that climate change is a crisis which is more closely centered on technology and where the availability of better technology just makes a bigger difference? Is that sort of a core of a hope for the future of climate change? That by itself doesn't get you there. Again, I'm a political scientist, so of course I'm going to see these things in terms of where governance does and doesn't work. But the reason that we are now at a point where we can see scale of renewable technologies supplanting fossil fuels is because a whole bunch of actors decided that they were going to respond against a lot of entrenched climate skepticism and climate denialism. We had decades of climate skepticism and climate denialism. We could have been investing at scale in those new technologies for decades. We chose not to. But the crisis got worse and people paid attention to it. And whether that's young people around the world or whether it's banks with longer term horizons. But what's fortunate about all of this and the Europeans, the EU doing so much more than the Americans and the Chinese in early stage. But what's important is this is a crisis where the United States and China at a federal level didn't have the ability to call all of the shots. If power were just in the hands of the Americans and the Chinese, we would be failing on climate to a much greater degree than we now are. That's very important. So the diffusion of power to a much larger number of actors, some of whom have different time horizons, some of whom are less contained and constrained and captured by near-term political interests, is a very, very important mechanism that allows you to break through this G0 order. Because again, my constraints at the beginning, the political system in the most powerful country can't be fixed and the relationship between the two most powerful can't be fixed. So if you're in an environment where those are the only actors that matter, you are seriously screwed, my friend, but you're not. These global crises are in an environment or occurring in an environment where actually the multiplicity of actors is far more diffuse and it gives you just much more traction to start turning those gears towards a faster solution. So look, I have no doubt in my mind that given the technologies of renewable energy, that in 100 years or 200 years, no matter what the power structure was, you would eventually get there. But you would eventually get there with five or six degrees of warming and the planet would be cooked and the people would be, I mean, globalization would be over in that environment. We wouldn't be sustainable for 7 billion people, never mind 10 or 15. 
that's not what we're now talking about. We're now talking about credible pathways between 1.5 and 2.5 maximum degrees centigrade of warming. That is better than any climate advocate would have expected even five years ago. How did that happen? That's what the book is talking about. Yeah, and I think that story is starting to feel a little bit familiar, but actually the worst outcomes are now much less likely. David Wallace Wells was on this podcast talking about this, but the conversation is usually framed around technology. And I think your contribution here is really to show it's not about technology, it's about technology plus governance. Yes, absolutely. And that we've had improvements and changes on that that are even less widely known than just the you know incredibly quickly falling price of renewables, for example. Let's make sure to get the third bucket, the sort of broader technological changes in AI in particular. What is the nature of that challenge? And there, to me, it is least intuitive that there are these very clearly shared interests because the arms race and something like AI between China and the United States just seems to create competing incentives in a way that the race to build the best solar panel and out panels and outfit the world with them does not seem to me to do. So let me frame it. When I was a kid, the equivalent crisis we had was the proliferation of nuclear weapons. We're all very worried that this could end the planet as we knew it. And there were a small number of actors that had nukes. And we wanted to make sure that that number did not grow. We did not want to see countries all over the world with nukes, and we sure as hell did not want non-state actors, terrorist organizations, and others like that to achieve nukes. Even though the Americans and the Soviets didn't trust each other at all and were pointing these weapons at each other, we knew that we needed a robust non-proliferation regime. And 80 years later, we've done a pretty good job in helping to limit the number of actors that have access to this very dangerous technology. And there are a lot of reasons why it succeeded. We can get into that if you want. Today, we have a range of new disruptive technologies, whether it's biotech or lethal autonomous drones, or whether it's disinformation algorithms, whether it's cyber weaponry, or even potentially quantum computing technology that I would argue are equally dangerous in their manifestations if they proliferate as nuclear weapons have been. And yet we don't have even the beginning of the architecture to try to contain them. So the question is, if this is the next big existential crisis for the world and everyone doesn't really recognize it yet, what are we going to do? How do we respond to it? What's the nature of the challenge? What's the nature of the interests in actors that matter around the world? And do we have a shot of addressing this? That's what the last crisis in the book is all about. And so what would it look like to start to address this? And where does optimism come from that we may be able to do so? So looking back at climate change, in order to solve the problem, we first have to agree on identifying the problem. And we've done this in climate change by putting together an intergovernmental panel on climate change, the IPCC. And this is a group of actors from countries all over the world that understand and agree on the ground facts, the science. Whatever you decide to do, 
here's the state of play of global climate. You might decide you want to put a lot of money into it. You might decide you're not, but you got to at least agree on here's the problem. So we don't yet have that. We need it. We need an IPAI, an intergovernmental panel on artificial intelligence. And this also needs to be a multi-stakeholder group. Yes, governments need to participate, but I mean, clearly you need public policy experts and you need engineers, but perhaps most importantly, you're going to need representatives from the technology companies. Because what's very interesting in looking at disruptive technologies is that the tech companies in many ways are more powerful than the governments. They are literally acting as sovereign in the digital space. And that creates a real opportunity because it's not just about the United States and China and a new technology cold war. Like these companies are actually creating the algorithms. These companies are aware of the cyber attacks in a way that the governments aren't. But they also are not used to participating in architecture like this. So this is new for them. We have to create it from scratch. And then once you've done that in the next one to three years, and I've had extended conversations with Antonio Gutierrez, you know, the sec gen who's on the back cover of the book about the necessity of doing this. And he, he fully agrees that this is an important step to take. Then I think you move towards a global compact on AI. Then you put together an institution that would be the equivalent of the COP summits on climate. And remember, the COP summits on climate, you have all these different things. You've got deforestation, and you've got methane emissions, and you have carbon emissions, and you have biodiversity. And different actors can be involved in different chapters, different components of responding to the climate change challenge. I would expect you do the same thing with AI, that there'd be different challenges that you would identify, and you would create groups of intentional actors with both power and interest to police the problem, deter the problem, commit to not being a part of the problem and build it out from there. So, I mean, look, Yasha, I fully accept we are far globally from resolving this right now, but this is the time to address it. It's going to get worse. I do believe there are similarities with climate in Ukraine in the sense that the farther we go along, almost everybody will be on one side of the problem. They'll say, no, we don't want this stuff proliferating. It's bad. It's dangerous. And further, you're going to see far more headlines that are going to confirm your priors. Oh my God, this is getting much more dangerous. Wow, that was a near miss. Oh, that just affected me. That's going to push you in that direction. So I do believe that we have opportunities to respond to this crisis. Whether it's going to be adequate, sufficient, fast enough, that's an open question. One of the big challenges of doing something like a podcast is that the ambition is always to get people to be themselves once you're recording and to be the same way that they are before that. I think, Ian, you're excellent at that. But you know, before we started recording, we ended up having this really interesting conversation about our sort of personal and professional lives. And I'm going to try and get that out into the open because I thought it was an interesting thing to reflect on. You know, you're somebody who runs the Eurasia group, which you founded. So your job is in part to be one of the best connected people on the planet. That's what your professional success depends on. So you have to go to Davos where you just were and you have to go to 
plenty of lunches and dinners with all kinds of people, some of whom I'm sure you like and some of whom perhaps you like less. How should people think about, especially people whose lives involve that kind of professional networking a lot, how should they think about doing that and doing that successfully, but also staying clear in the mind about who's a friend and who's just part of a professional network or, or making sure that all of your social time doesn't actually become quasi-professional time? How do you lead a satisfied and fulfilled life at a personal level while maintaining a professional network, which can be very important for those kinds of purposes? Well, I thought you were very interesting on this point in that conversation, in the sense that when you said that you have to remember when you're having those conversations, who your friends are, because we all have biases. We all have people that we actually like more than not. And, you know, you and I, I mean, why am I doing this podcast again? Why have you been on my show? Because at some level, we don't just find each other intellectually engaging and worthwhile, but we also like each other personally. I wouldn't respond to you the way I presently do if I didn't think that, yeah, he's a good guy, fundamentally a good guy. Like we're not super tight in the sense that I don't see you all the time. We don't socialize and have drinks whenever we could, but we clearly get on. Like if you and I were at a meeting together, we'd hang out a bit, right? I think that's a fair thing to say. So I don't have a problem with admitting that I have biases towards people that I like. But I think being honest with yourself about that and being honest with others about that, including those people themselves, is a useful thing to do because you want to be authentic. When I feel like I'm not being authentic, it's a real problem. But to get closer to answering the question that you just asked, it you need to be someone who is energized by people to be in a position that I'm in. Because frequently I will be talking to people that I don't necessarily like, but I'm still energized by them. And I'm energized by them because I want to learn who they are. Not because I want to hang out with them, but because they have a worldview, a background, and a perspective that is clearly interesting. Like There are networkers out there that are not about content. There are networkers that are in sales mode. You know, you're a VC. Or you're, you know, whatever, who the hell knows what you are. But there's so many people that you meet at these events and all they're trying to do is become connectors or influencers. I tend to avoid those people. But I am very, very interested in talking to all sorts of people that come from a radically different worldview than mine. Not because I'm going to be close friends of theirs, but because I want to understand them. I actually am, I'm a legitimately curious person about wildly disparate perspectives on the world. And I find conversations like that energizing. So I will tell you, when I'm in a place like Davos, one of the things that's most important for me is at the end of the day, because I'm on, I've done my presentations, I've done my one-on-one, my bilats, as they call them, everything else. I am spent. I am shot. It's dinner time. I am no longer on. I am now looking for who are the people that I really like, that are in my safe space, that I can just hang out with have a drink with, shoot the shit, and just be myself. And that's recharging. I don't want to be by myself in my room, but I want to be around people that I can easily just relate to. I don't have to try. I don't have to be on. I don't have to be doing my system one thinking, right? Looking back on Davos last week in the evenings, absolutely. Every night, if I was out at was the New York Times dinner, was uh, the piano bar on the Tuesday night, who are the three, four people that are around there that I just want to hang out with for a bit? And that lets you recharge. That lets you be more of a human being. I think that's really important. So I think in a way, we've talked about two quite different topics. So one is sort of how are you an effective network and how can people be effective networkers? And that's 
an important question. I'm sure that young people listening to this podcast who are, you know, in college or in the early 20s, that's an important thing, right? You're interested in some field and you want to have an opportunity to speak to the people who are shaping it and get noticed by them and so on. It's a perfectly legitimate goal. I think to that, the answer is relatively straightforward. And we have actually similar answers, which is that as far as possible, you want to engage them as equals respectfully. As far as possible, you want to engage them through content. If they can tell that all you want to do is like get your business card into their hands, that's not going to work very well. But if you have something interesting to say to them, if you have a conversation with them that they remember, if you have been working on something or studying something that you can impart to them that's actually of interest to them, that's how you build a relationship and that's how they're going to remember you. And that's how they might think, hey, this is not somebody who just wants something from me. This is somebody who I might enjoy spending time with. So that piece I actually, at this point in my career, certainly not, you know, 20 years ago, at this point, find find easy and straightforward. I think what's harder is on the personal side, because I agree with you, it's much easier to maintain a network with people who you genuinely like. It's much easier, you know, when you're at a conference to gravitate towards the people who you genuinely enjoy hanging out with. And, you know, once you're part of a kind of professional circle, at most conferences, there will be a lot of people who genuinely enjoy hanging out with and having a good time with. But that's still not friendship, right? That's still, there's a difference between having these professional acquaintances that you like, that you're very happy to see. It's like, oh, hey, you know, Tom, great that I ran into you. Let's go get a drink. And that's all genuine. But, you know, if you stop going to the same conferences or something like that, it's not clear that you would continue to be friends, but you continue to be in touch. So how do you make sure that that professional life doesn't take over all of your personal life or that you know who is the kind of conference attendee who you're happy to see and who's actually your friend. Well, we were talking about Davos. So, I mean, I was answering it in the context of how I handled a week where you're jet lagged, you're exhausted, you're meant to be on all the time and how do you create balance? That's very different from who are your friends and how do you respond to your friends? So I would say starting about 15 years ago, I realized I wasn't taking proper vacation. I take a week here, a week there, but I wasn't taking real downtime. And I decided I was going to start taking a month off every summer. And, you know, a month is a lot of time and I'll still read and write, but I'm not going to do any client work. I'm not going to be responding to my emails. I'm not, that I'm not doing. And I'm someone that's like you, I've traveled all over the world. So I'm initially thinking of these incredibly exotic locations, but I realized that it's not that I'm looking to unplug from the world. It's that I'm not spending enough quality time with the people I care about. Because you can go and have a dinner with someone you really like, and it's two hours, but you're not really spending quality time. And so I decided I was going to get a house in Nantucket. I'm originally from just outside Boston. So it's a place that I easily relate to, connect with. It's like you can watch the Red Sox on television, that whole thing. It's New England, but that all of my friends would come. And so over the course of this four weeks, I was inviting all the people that I wish I was spending more time with over the course of the year. And they're coming to my house and they're not working, no laptops allowed in public areas. And we're just hanging out and we're going to the beach and we're playing sports and we're running and we're biking and we're barbecuing and all of that. And, you know, you spend three days with someone that you like, that you've had a few dinners with over the course of the year, but not really quite. How much can you really connect with someone over the course of dinner? Right. I mean, it's when your guard's down 
And when you're truly relaxed and you're just shooting the shit on anything, that suddenly the things that you've been thinking about, maybe they've been bothering you, stressing you, curious about, that's when you're learning. That's when you connect with the people that you care about. And for me, the Americans, let's face it, we, we're not good at taking time for ourselves, our family, our friends. We're not good at it at all. The Europeans are much better many around the world. I mean, Africans, frankly, are much better. The Middle East is much better. Asia depends on the culture. But the United States, we're not good at it in the United States. And especially as someone who, I mean, people that know me, like I founded this company. So I own this firm, it's 200 people, and I'm 52 years old. I cannot think of any American that has remotely close to my level of professional slash business success that takes the kind of time off every year that I take. And I don't understand that. I think it is, I think it's dysfunctional. So for me, that's extremely important. I would not give that up. I mean, I work out every morning. I make time for it. A lot of people do that. A lot of people do that. I have to work out every morning. A lot of people have their routines, but being willing to take quality time and say, no, I'm going to just connect with the people who they don't matter a whit for my business, but they're people that matter to me you know, why do you have a dog? You have a dog because you want to hang out with this little furry thing that you're connected with emotionally. Well, that's not enough. It's nice, but it's not enough. So I think those things really matter. And those things, you can't get that in your two hours at a conference. Yasha, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, thank you. That's a beautiful ending, I think, to the conversation and something that I felt really strongly. I do a similar thing where once a year, I invite my friends to a house in Italy and we just hang out. And it's always the most nourishing part of my year. And I have this sort of feeling that the downside of these very international lives, we've lived in different countries and know people from all over, is that they end up not being in the same place. And I would happily move to the most boring remote village in the world if I could pick my 15 people to take with me. Ian, thank you for your openness on this and thanks for this great conversation. Yeah, sure. Pleasure to talk with you as always. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.